1 Kings chapter 11. If you'll join me there as we continue our study through 1 Kings together. At this point in our study through the book of 1 Kings, we made our way last time down as far as verse 13 in chapter 11. And we're really at this point looking at the unfortunate decline of King Solomon. Uh, Solomon started out well, uh, kind of like Saul, the first king of Israel, did. And incredible potential, incredible opportunity, but Solomon in some ways, like other characters in the Bible, is sort of a record of wasted potential and ruined opportunity. And Solomon, though he had so much afforded to him, unfortunately began to deviate and turn away. He began to violate everything that Deuteronomy 17 said that a king was not to do, which was, remember, to multiply wives to himself. The king was not to do that. The king was not to multiply gold and silver he wasn't to multiply horses and chariots a dependency upon military strength and those kind of things and Solomon just unfortunately began to allow his own passions and sensual desires though he had great wisdom and knowledge about many things uh, he didn't regulate his passions he allowed himself to become entangled in all kinds of things and began to just uh, fall into the cravings of his own flesh and began to pursue all these things to his own demise where ultimately we saw as we came to chapter 11 particularly there uh, in verses uh, 11 through 13 those last few verses we read together as we finished out last time that the Lord then said to Solomon verse 11 if you'll look with me there of chapter 11 where God again let's remind ourselves said to him Solomon because you've done this now that's a reference to everything, not only prior at the beginning of the chapter, but all these things we've been watching Solomon do. Chapter 11 sort of just really drove the nail home of how his multitude of wives turned his heart away after other gods and he fell into idolatry and all these different abominable practices and again as the leader of the nation the impact this had was unfortunate but God says to him Solomon because you've done these things notice and not kept my covenant and statutes which I commanded you I will surely this was now the consequence the chastisement of God I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Now we'll see who that is. That'll be Jeroboam. We'll see in these chapters in front of us. Nevertheless, God, this was God's mercy, he said, verse 12, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. Notice it wasn't for Solomon's sake. This was God showing mercy and grace for David's sake, who the covenant had been made with the house of David because of the relationship David had with the Lord Solomon's father. He says, I will tear it out of the hand of your son who we'll see is Rehoboam in these verses ahead. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. Again, this is mercy. Again, God bringing judgment, God bringing discipline for this grievous sin that was something that had come into his life. But again, God always brings his judgment with incredible mercy so many times. I mean, if, if, if God unleashed the fullness of the wrath of God of what any one of us deserved, or quite frankly, what probably what any nation really deserved in the ways that at times we can rebel against God. Uh, it, it would be quite unthinkable. So often God, even when he brings judgment righteously, even when God just brings discipline into our lives as his own children. Hebrews 12 says that, you know, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And even in God's chastening and disciplining of our lives as his children, it's always mingled with mercy. 
there's always so much grace still measured into it. And here God is speaking to Solomon what's going to happen, but he's saying, I'm not going to tear it away, the whole kingdom. I will give still to your son, uh, he says, one tribe. Ultimately, it will really be two tribes. Judah and Benjamin will join them, the southern kingdom. For the sake, again, notice, of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So again, God's not going to cut off his nose to spite his uh, face or, or however that works. What do you do there? Yeah, it's D- dis- all right, that's it. Okay. Uh, God's not going to ultimately do things to discount his plans and purposes or really cast aside his will or plan because of the failures of man. God is incredibly wise and capable to still always bring to pass what he wants even despite the failures of humanity. And we see that theme weaved all throughout the word of God, that that God is more than able to rule sovereignly even over the evil and the rebellion of man. In fact, the the Bible says that God can even use the wrath of man to praise him. I mean, God is just marvelous in his ability to do this. And God will still orchestrate his plans and purposes. Notice for the house of David to make sure there is someone on the throne. Because, of course, remember, that goes ultimately out to the messianic line of Christ. Uh, and God would still do what he desired to do for the sake of Jerusalem, which he had chosen as the epicenter of where his plans and divine purposes would come to pass. But the kingdom now was going to predominantly be torn away from Solomon and there will now because the result of what Solomon has done bring about what we often refer to as the divided kingdom of Israel and for the next few centuries now for a few hundred years there will be a divided kingdom and really continuous civil war to some degree happening among the nation of Israel listen as the direct result of the sins and the failures and mistakes of one leader And hundreds of years, the nation would suffer, would find themselves going through difficulties and division because of the poor choices of one man in leadership. So important to realize, you know, any role of leadership, whether it be over three people, 300 people, 3,000 or 3 million people, boy, the impact and influence that it can have and the far-reaching extent uh, it can take place is often much more than what we think about uh, in times when those kind of things are going on. And here Solomon now is going to bring about the divided kingdom. God's going to tear away the kingdom, give it to one of his servants, and ten tribes will then begin to follow a king in the north. And only two tribes, ultimately Judah and Benjamin, will be where the house of David continues to have some reign uh, there in the southern kingdom for a while. So verse 14, this process of the unfolding and the removing of, of Solomon from his place of leadership now begins to happen. Solomon is in a place where God's discipline and judgment is beginning to come against him and we begin to see this happening. And I think probably the slow process that happened, it didn't happen immediately, was probably an intention on God's part in hopes that maybe he would repent and that perhaps Solomon, maybe in, in, in the mercy of God, would come to a place where, like it says in Second Timothy, where he came to his senses and escaped the snare of the devil and realized, what have I done? And maybe perhaps if he would have fallen on his face and in brokenness, a broken and contrite heart, the Bible says God doesn't despise, and pleaded for God's mercy upon him, who knows what God may have done if there was a heart of repentance and a turning away. But unfortunately, 
We don't see that in Solomon. And so now God gradually begins to bring difficulty into his life to allow these things to unfold. The first thing that happens, verse 14, is problems begin to arise from the the southern borders where there become conflicts and skirmishes, sort of border conflicts coming from the south. Notice verse 14, particularly it says, now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Particularly the Holy Spirit wants us to see this adversary Though their actions were cruel and though their activities were opposing what Solomon and the people of Israel were doing, that that this was God sovereignly moving in a situation among national occurrences, really, if you would, somewhat pulling his hedge of protection back, pulling his hand of favor back from his people and from a nation that his blessing was upon. In essence, God said, listen, well, if you want to turn away from me, And you want to turn to idolatry and you want to push me out of your public life and your government life and your personal lives. Well, then that's fine. I'll begin to take my hands off of protection and blessing and preservation. And I'll begin to allow you to experience conflict and problems from border nations around you so that you can experience some of your own ways. And boy, I'll tell you, that's a sobering reminder because the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. And when we begin to turn away from God as a people and a nation, oftentimes we put ourselves in a very precarious place. So we read verse 14, the Lord is raising up now an adversary against Solomon. His name was Hadad, the Edomite, and he was a descendant of the king in Edom. So someone who was a direct descendant of the king of the people of Edom that was in the southern part of really where Israel was to the south. Verse 15, for it happened when David was in Edom. Now, this tells us how this all unfolded. This is how it took place. It happened when David was in Edom. We're going back now a few decades. And Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom because for six months, Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom. So the Bible's recounting for us a time during the days of David when David was fighting conflicts and David was going out fighting the battles of the Lord and Joab, his commander on one occasion became very severe and Joab was known for this and he literally, it says, exterminated all of the males, killing every male in Edom for a six-month period, cutting down every male. Now, what the intention of that, understand militarily, was basically to set a military in a country back an entire generation. Because if you wiped out every male among a people group, well, you probably for a few decades just set them back at least a good generation from ever having any military power and being able to do anything again. So this was a severe uh, sort of extermination among their people, something that was very horrific among them. And Hadad at that time, who was a descendant of the king, he fled to go down to Egypt. And certain Edomites of his father's servants had went with him. And at that time, it says, verse 17, he was still a little child. So this very traumatic experience happened in his early life. And he flees for safety to to Egypt. And they arose from Midian, came to Paran and took men with them from Paran, came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, apportioned food for him and gave him land. So the Pharaoh took pity, it seems, upon these few survivors from Edom, particularly this descendant Hadad of the king of Edom. And Hadad also, verse 19, found great favor, notice, in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife the sister 
of his own wife, that is the sister of Queen Taphanes. And then the sister of Taphanes bore him Ganuboth, his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Ganuboth was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So he became quite established there among the people of Egypt, even found himself in, in really the, the, the palace life. He married one of the relatives of the queen and, I mean, just was really being treated like royalty. He had been blessed. He became very comfortable there. I mean, that's, you know, a, a pretty ideal opportunity. I mean, that'd be like, you know, the president of the United States that married, you know, his uh, wife's sister. And, I mean, you're talking about he's kind of set himself up quite well. They've treated him favorably. He's got a very comfortable life. There would be no reason. And understand, Egypt in that day, in the time of their prime, was a very coveted place to live. In fact, it's said historically that the Egyptians could not see any logical reason why any person would want to live anywhere outside of the, the, the society and the civilization of their own people because of the great pyramids and the advancements and all they had in that day. So again, the picture here is he's living a very comfortable life. However, verse 21 when Hadad, remember who had that traumatic experience, heard in Egypt that David had rested with his fathers and Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad then said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. So at a point he hears, David has now died, Joab, his commander, has now died, and it's at that point his heart is stirred that he wants to depart and go back to his own land of Edom. And that began the process where ultimately then he became a harassment to Solomon as God used him there. Again, why? Because this is a young man who had a very bitter, horrific experience in his childhood. And he's been nursing a lot of animosity for his whole life. And now he goes back to Edom. And the only thing he's got on my mind is anything I can do to get retribution for what was done to me by these people now that David and Joab are gone, it's safe. I'm, I'm no longer fearful of them. He's a grown man now with a, a real chip on his shoulder and he does not like the people of Israel. And so therefore he becomes a adversary that God raises up to hassle Solomon at this time. Notice when he asked to depart, verse 22, Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me? That suddenly, notice suddenly, you seek to go to your own country, but he answered nothing. I don't like anything but do let me go anyway. So notice, he decides with this compelling you know, drive within him, I have got to go back to my own country. He had nothing to do with that things were difficult. Even Pharaoh says, the, as the, the king of the people of Egypt, what do you lack? Why would you want to leave and go back to Edom? I mean, you are living in luxury. You have a wonderful life here. Why would you want to go back to Edom? But something within him is driven and stirred to want to go back to his own country. And the thing that's going on is very simply this. God is sovereignly stirring his heart at this set time in history to act in such a way in a manner that will be in fulfillment with the plan of God. Because why? What did we read earlier? The Lord was raising up an adversary against Solomon as a form of discipline and, and to hassle Solomon because of Solomon's wrongdoing. And, and I look at this and I think, what an amazing thing. Events that happened in his life years and years earlier, honestly, decades earlier when he was your child, things that were difficult and negative and harmful. Now, years later in his adulthood, God uses those difficult, harmful, painful experiences 
to fulfill divine purposes in his life. Because now he literally is being used as a pawn of the Lord to go up and to hassle Solomon at this time with military conflict where there would be skirmishes on the southern border. God stirred his heart at a set time to act in a manner to fulfill God's will. And I think what a wonderful reminder that, you know, sometimes things happen in our lives, maybe a very painful, unpleasant experience, maybe a series of painful, unpleasant experiences. That's what Hadad's childhood included. And yet those things that happened decades before in his life, God and his sovereign rule over all things, ultimately used those painful, problematic harmful things in this young in this man's childhood and his adult life somehow took it and turned it around and now uses it for a purpose that's actually in accordance with the will of God and the plan of God for his life what a great encouragement listen no pain no suffering no hardship you've gone through in your life has to be in vain God can ultimately take things that have happened to us in our lives and somehow use them for his good plans and purposes still to orchestrate things. And again, we see as well here how, how God can stir in a heart. This man had no reason to leave and depart from Egypt. He had every reason to stay right where he was, but yet something in him was saying, I need to depart. I have to depart. It's time to go. And there was this sense of this stirring within. And sometimes that is how the Lord works. Sometimes there may seem to be no logical circumstantial reason, but sometimes God's spirit moves on our heart and he stirs us to act or to do something. Uh, and it may not even make logical sense. It just may be the stirring of the Lord and the leading of God because of some purpose he has. So Hadad's being raised up in this way to be a southern adversary. And then verse 23, God also raised up, notice, another adversary against him now this will be from the northern direction so we'll have problems from the south and solomon has problems from the north again notice the spirit emphasizes verse 23 god raised up another adversary against solomon this time it was resin the son of eliada who had fled from his lord hadadezer the king of zobah so he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah and they went from Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus, that would be north of Israel. He was an adversary, the Bible says, notice, of Israel all the days of Solomon besides the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. So now God creates conflict from the northern area coming down against them so again god has a real good way when he wants to get our attention you know from the south and the north god's just pinching and and closing in and, and kind of putting the pressure on solomon here and he's even allowing mistreatment and hassle from enemies to try and awaken solomon to his error Listen, I, I think we need to be careful and we have to keep things in balance and be wise and prayerful. Uh, we certainly should not interpret every difficulty in our life and every hardship and every problem that we face as, well, this is God getting me for something and what did I do wrong and I must have sinned or made a mistake somewhere. And I think we, we need to be careful. The Bible is very clear that as Christians, even when we're in the center of the will of the Lord, we may still face challenges and tribulations. The Bible says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus sent his disciples out into the middle of a storm. Uh, and he sent them there. It wasn't if he missed the weather forecast. He literally sent them into the storm. Uh, and then he went out and he revealed himself to them and he did things. And when they were in that storm, they were in the center of the will of God. 
They were that was the center of the will of God in the storm, not safe and comfortable on the shore. But that being said, there also is a true reality that there are times when we may find ourselves dealing with hardships and difficulties and and maybe just hard experiences. And sometimes that is the disciplinary work of God where God is truly trying to get our attention. And, and I, listen, I think if we are honest and willing to be humble and realistic, it's usually not real hard to calculate and put the pieces together when that's kind of what's going on. I, I know for myself anyway, usually if the, you know, the difficulties are the disciplinary hand of God in some way in my life because of poor choices or things that, you know, I just got out of line in some way. Usually it's, it's pretty easy for me to connect the dots in regards to that. It's not like God kind of leaves you in the dark. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, was that and that and that and you know, that was stupid. And okay, now I'm getting stupid punishment, you know, and, and typically you know, it's a self-inflicted trial. But I think we need to recognize that if there are times in our lives where we find ourselves kind of being squeezed and pressured and difficulties are, you know, coming upon us, sometimes that is the hand of the Lord trying to get our attention and maybe to humble us and to make us realize that we've kind of maybe deviated or stepped out of line and God's trying to, you know, squeeze us to get our attention. And that's what was going on with Solomon here from the north and the south, adversaries attacking him. And if that weren't enough, now even from right within the nation, verse 26 says, Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow also rebelled against the king. So if outside foreign nations weren't enough, now he's going to have conflict from right within the nation of Israel itself. An Ephraimite man named Jeroboam, this was actually one of his staff members. And this, the Bible says, is what caused him to rebel against King Solomon. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. And then the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man was industrious, made him officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So notice Jeroboam is going to be ultimately, as we said, who the kingdom being torn away from Solomon is given to. But notice some of the early experiences of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, by nature, seemed to have some real unique virtues to his life. It says he was a man of valor. It says he was a man, notice, who was industrious, that he was just a hard worker. He was just someone who seemed to just be geared towards being very productive in such a way that Solomon took notice. Hey, this young guy, I mean, he's, he's a man of valor. He seems to have respect among the people. He's an honorable man. He's industrious. He's getting things done. This guy needs to be a foreman over some of my projects. And he put him into a position of authority and he gave him some opportunity to provide leadership and oversight. So he seemed to be sort of a natural born go-getter and, and really a natural leader by design in the way just that he was kind of wired in his temperament and he had been promoted by Solomon and had a little taste of what it was like to provide oversight over all the labor force and you remember how big the labor forces of Solomon were we saw in all these construction projects we read in the earlier chapters well here's here's what happens now where this all comes to pass verse 29 here's Jeroboam one day he's leaving from the construction site the foreman's going home and it says it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite met him on the way and he had clothed himself with a new garment 
and the two were alone in the field. So he's walking through the field. He meets the prophet Ahijah, just has an encounter with this man. And Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. Now, commentators dispute over this. To me, it's always interesting that commentators dispute over things that seem to have very little value uh, rather than what really... Uh, whose garment got torn here? Did, did the prophet go up to Jeroboam in his brand new garment because he just got his raise because he's now the foreman, you know, over all the... And did he tear up Jeroboam's garment and walk up to him and, you know, and tear... Or did the prophet tear his own garment? I tend to kind of lean on the side that I think the prophet probably tore his own garment. It'd be a little weird to just walk up to somebody, just start tearing their clothes off him. I don't think he'd stick around for me like, you are weird, see you later. You know what I mean? If somebody started tearing my clothes off, I'd, that's an indication we're not talking any longer. You know, uh, I think what happened here, and the prophets in the Old Testament, they were some unique characters, were they not? I mean, some of the things that God would lead, and we'll see as we move now into the uh, part of the Old Testament where we see more of the prophets beginning to come forth in their ministries, they did some really unique things. But these unique things they would do were meant to really drive home the message of God and get people's attention. So Ahijah comes up to Jeroboam, perhaps says hello to him, or perhaps he just to get his attention. They're alone in the field, and he literally just, just starts tearing his garment up. And it says he tears it into ten different pieces... And it says, verse 31, he then said to Jeroboam, after tearing it, excuse me, into 12 pieces, take for yourselves 10 of the pieces. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. But he shall have one for the sake of my servant David, which the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. So, this unique occurrence, he tears his garment in 12 pieces, apportions out 10. He says here, take 10 pieces. And this was a symbolic way to demonstrate what was going to happen. This announcement, God is tearing the kingdom away from Solomon and he is going to give 10 of the tribes of the nation of Israel to you and under your leadership as you now come into a place of authority. So there's this announcement that this event is going to take place. This calling is now upon his life to become a leader over 10 of the tribes in the northern part of Israel. This incredible announcement from the prophet. The reason, verse 33, because, now that's always a reason word. This is why God's going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon. Because they've forsaken me. Worship the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. And we've talked about the horrific things these different pagan deities uh, sort of incorporated in their worship practice. And they've not walked, God says, in my ways to do what is right in my eyes, to keep my statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. So notice it was because of the nation's rebellion against God because of Solomon really initiating that rebellion by letting his foreign wives set up all their altars to their different gods they had introduced and turning the people away. Notice God says it's because they forsaken me and turned to worship these other gods and were no longer obeying the word of God that God was now bringing about this turn of events. And God's going to bring a change. And listen, the Bible says God sets up kings and God tears down kings. And God is more than able, and we see this in these chapters, if God does not like the way something's going, he'll change it. 
And God has no problem. If he does not like the way something is going, Solomon is going in a direction and God said, you know what? I don't like the direction you're going in anymore. So God says that we're making a change here. And God has no problem intervening when necessary within his divine will and sovereign rule over all things. So this announcement now comes because of the sin of Solomon and the nation. There will come this divide, unfortunately. Verse 34, the message goes on. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I've made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David. Again, this was because of the Davidic covenant. God keeps his covenant promises. Whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. Verse 35, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe. And my servant David may always have a lamp before me. Again, God wanted to honor his promise to keep a light before the Lord there in Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen for myself to put my name there. Verse 37, So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, to walk in my ways, to do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes, my commandments, as my servant David did, then, here's the promise, I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever, not permanently or forever. Now, take notice, you want to talk about tremendous opportunity? I mean, here is Jeroboam, and God basically, if you look at the language there, affords to Jeroboam the same opportunity that he did to David, to Solomon. You want to talk about a sovereign act of the grace of God. There was nothing special or deserving about Jeroboam. God just chose in the process of his plan that the kingdom was going to be torn away, puts his divine grace upon Jeroboam and then gives him these incredible promises. If you honor me, walk in my ways, keep what I command, he says, heed me and obey me. God says, I will be with you. That's the presence of God, his favor. I'll build for you an enduring house. That's the blessing of God. He says, even as I built for David and give Israel to you. Now, man, what an opportunity that God offers to him. God desires to to bless and gives him this incredible assurance. The sad thing is, again, Jeroboam will be another testimony to someone who God gave such promises, such opportunities of, of what God wanted to do, which was to bless him, and yet he will forfeit them in his own foolish actions as well. We'll see. So verse 40 says, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. Now that's likely because word got back to him as the king that the kingdom was going to be given over to him and Solomon wants to resist that. He's sort of making a last effort to cling on to what he's losing. So he wants to kill Jeroboam and this then causes, verse 40, for a time Jeroboam to arise and to flee over to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt. And he was there in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book? of the acts of Solomon. So there was some record, not in scripture, but uh, a record of the life and the acts of Solomon. And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried there in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, 
his son reigned in his place. Chapter 12, verse 1, and Rehoboam now takes the rule, and this is who the kingdom will ultimately be taken away from, as we talked about, will bring the divide. God said it would happen with his son. Rehoboam went to Shechem, and that was a good place because the many wonderful things, many spiritual experiences happened there at Shechem. He calls the people together in Shechem there, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. The coronation's about to happen. And so it happened, notice, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled there from the presence of King Solomon, had been dwelling there in Egypt, that he sent and called him. And then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. So Jeroboam now, having been there for a while, Solomon has died. He's now stirred because the time that God's intended has come to pass for the things he had prophesied about Jeroboam's life and the kingdom being torn away from Solomon's son and will be given to Jeroboam. Jeroboam's now stirred in his spirit and he and some of the Israelites gathered together at the coronation time of Rehoboam and they go up to make a plea and to make a request of Rehoboam. And again, all these natural, everyday human events are unfolding and yet at the same time, they are all just lining up perfectly in accordance with the will and the plan of God. You know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 that God works all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. Human affairs, human decisions, activities, things that people do. He makes all those things somehow in his marvelous wisdom and control all kind of come together and converge to still work out according to the counsel of his will. And that's what's happening here. So Jeroboam comes back from Egypt. He's together with some Israelites and they approach Rehoboam, verse 4. And here's what they make mention of. They say to him, as the new king, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. In essence, what you have here really is the people coming together to the king, their national leader, and saying, listen, your father, and certainly he blessed and, and brought about a prosperous kingdom, but he also levied very heavy, if you remember what we studied earlier, heavy, heavy taxation upon the people. You remember all the food and the funding and everything that went to keep King Solomon's uh, you know, government operating and to operate his household and palace affairs and so forth. So in essence, what you have here in verse 4, nothing new under the sun. From many, many centuries and centuries and centuries ago, people are saying, could we get a little tax relief, please? The taxation of the prior administration was brutal and it was heavy. So they're in essence just requesting tax relief. Verse 5, he did make a good start here. He said, well, I'll tell you what, depart from me. Give me three days. Then come back to me and the people departed. So he, he makes a good start there. He says, give me a few days to think this over. Now, whether he had already decided what he was going to do or not and just was kind of you know, making it look like he was entertaining their affair that could be the case because he seems to care nothing about the people we'll see but he says give me three days so they depart in verse 6 king rehoboam consulted with the elders who stood before his father solomon while he still lived and he said how do you advise me to answer these people in regards to the tax relief that they're requesting of him so he goes first to the elders that advised his father now king solomon was what incredibly wise can you imagine how wise his elders had to be? 
to advise King Solomon? I mean, these are wise men. These were the advisors to King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the Bible says, that had wisdom from God. So he goes to a great source of wisdom, older, godly, wise men. He says, hey, here's the scenario. What's your counsel? How do you recommend that I advise the people in their request for tax relief of me? And they spoke to him. This was their counsel. If you will be, notice verse 7, a servant to these people today and serve them. Isn't it called public servant still somewhere, I thought, in government? If you will be a servant to these people and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Again, good leadership always breeds commitment. So these wise advisors of his father say to him, listen, son, we've been doing this a little longer than you. Here's what we recommend. The people actually are, they're right. The taxation is heavy upon them and it's a burdensome load. So if you will prove yourself to care about the people and that you want to serve them and not just be served by them, and that you're willing to be someone who cares about them and helps them as a public servant as their king rather than just trying to get what you can out of them and utilize your position for self-serving purposes, the people will love you and they'll be loyal to you and they'll follow you. Good counsel, good advice, be a servant leader. Listen, that's, that's, that's God's heart and design. God always wants leadership to be servant leadership. So he gets very good advice from them. The unfortunate thing with advice is you can choose to do what you want with it. And Rehoboam wasn't interested in their advice. He didn't like their advice. It says, verse 9, but he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted instead the young men who had grown up with him. He went and talked to his buddies instead. Yeah, you, you older foam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me go talk to my buddies. Let me go see what they say. Let me talk to the younger generation. They're always hip right that's the best thing to do check what the younger generation says says, let me go check with my friends he says and he asked them as well he says who had grown up with him who stood before him what advice do you give how should we answer this people who've spoken to us saying lighten the yoke which your father put on us now take notice here's what's simple he rejects what is good advice what is wise advice which was really would have been in a proper approach and really in accordance with what would have been lining up with God's word and God's ways he rejects that and he goes and seeks different advice and this is such a dangerous common thing to do when somebody has their mind set on what they already want to do sometimes they will entertain the advice of certain individuals you know they'll go to somebody that's a godly individual get good godly counsel or maybe go to a you know a spiritual leader or whatever and get some counsel but then they reject that advice and they go searching and looking until somebody gives them the advice that they would really like the advice that lines up with what they would really like to do uh, and, and here, this is really what Rehoboam does. This is the foolishness and the demise of him as a, as a young and foolish leader, which brings the downfall of what he's doing. So he goes to his friends. What do you think we should do? Well, the young men, verse 10, they said to him, those who had grown up with him, verse 10, thus you shall speak to this people who've spoken to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger, shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, 
but I will chastise you with scourges. In other words, you think my dad's taxation was heavy. You have no idea the improvements in leadership I'm going to make. He says, my father might have whipped you with whips, he says, but I'm going to chastise you with scourges. Now, the difference between a whip and a scourge, a whip was just maybe the leather strands. The scourge typically was the leather strands of a whip, but then usually it had glass or lead or bone embedded in it so that when it came over the back of someone, when they would yank back or snap back the whip, it would literally rip off the flesh of the back. So it was much more painful and brutal. So he's saying, listen, you haven't seen anything yet. This is what they're recommending. Look, don't you can't be light on these people if, if you don't take these people and get them under control, and you don't get them, you know, under your control and and you know really cooperative with your authority, and they don't recognize that you're the big dog in town. Then you you don't want to get into that kind of a thing. You need to let them know who's in charge. Again, this is a very unfortunate attitude that sometimes comes from the spirit of youthfulness, just arrogance. And, and just a need to have to try and control people's lives and be in charge of people and bully people and, and kind of push people around. There, look, there's, if you have true authority, you, you don't need to control people. If you have true authority, you will have influence on people. And you don't need to force people to do stuff. Those with genuine authority have influence on people. And people will want to follow. And if you lead in a, in, in a servant-hearted way, but this is the advice he receives. And unfortunately, this is the advice that Rehoboam goes with that causes problems. And listen, I think there's a great reminder here for, for all of us you know, to, to pay attention to who you select as your counselors. You know, don't be foolish. Be wise enough to build into your life good, wise counselors who even when you don't like what they're saying, you still take heed to their advice. And you recognize that sometimes other people know way better than you do. And to appreciate their counsel, not just reject their advice and go looking for somebody that's going to say to you what you want them to say to endorse what you really want to do in your own fleshly desires or self-seeking you know kind of you know decisions in that moment and this is what Rehoboam makes a great mistake in doing beware you know when you choose your counselors look for wise counselors you know those who give you good sound judgment and take heed to what they say and here Rehoboam doesn't do that unfortunately he listens just to what his friends say that really lines up more as I said with his own kind of sinful self-seeking attitude at this moment and verse 12 says, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam that third day, as the king directed, saying, Come back to me. And the king answered the people, notice, roughly. And he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king, verse 15, God says, the king did not listen to the people for the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to the people, he answered the king saying, what share have we in David? What desire do we have to participate with David in his house anymore? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, flee. Turn away, rebel, the idea is. Now see to your own house, David, we're forsaking your leadership. So Israel departed to their tents, 
but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who still dwelt in the cities of Judah. So we now come to the divided kingdom. The ten northern tribes turn away from the house of David. Only Judah, the southern two tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, stay loyal to the southern kingdom. We'll now have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at this point. But notice, these events unfold again. It's the harshness, it's the arrogance, it's the pride of Rehoboam and his attitude and the way he treated the people that brings about this division. And again, listen, pride and arrogance in someone's spirit and attitude in treating people harshly and roughly rather than lovingly and compassionately and caring about people, this is what that it causes division. It causes horrible, painful tearings and separations. And here, this, this tearing of the nation happens now. But notice verse 15, important, the turn of events was from the Lord. Again, I want you to take notice here. God lets people make choices. He even allows people to pursue, if they choose, their own sinful ways and to do what is wrong. And yet, he still orchestrates his plans because the turn of events really still came about as the result of the fulfillment of a prophecy of God. And sometimes, listen, we'll see things happen and we think, oh man, that's horrible what happened. And, and indeed it is. But we need to trust that we have a sovereign God who rules over all things. And sometimes we think, wow, that's horrible. This was going so... And then it took a horrible detour. Well, listen, maybe that horrible thing that happened and the detour it caused really is something that still God orchestrated in the turn of events ultimately was of the Lord that God used even the wrong things that people did to bring about a turn of events ultimately that still lines up with his plans and purposes because God never loses control even when people get out of control God never loses control and he has a way of overruling so this turn of events even unfortunate as it was was from the Lord the kingdom now becomes divided few more verses we'll wrap it up verse 18 so king rehoboam now after this great rift and the people to all turn away it shows you this guy was stubborn to the max <laughs> he sent adoram who was in charge of the revenue the treasury but all israel stoned him with stones and he died you don't want to be a tax collector i mean this didn't work well in that day Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste, in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So after all this, you know, I'm going to tax you even worse than my father. Oh yeah, forget it. Civil war, they all turn away. And Rehoboam takes his guy that's in charge of revenue. He says, listen, I want you to go collect taxes from them now. And as soon as he shows up, taxes? <laughs> this poor guy, man, he, just, he gets stoned and Rehoboam now realizes, well, I guess that wasn't a good idea. And he now flees away in fear of what's going on, the civil war among the people. Verse 19, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. And there was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So Jeroboam now is asked by the people to become their new king over the 10 tribes in the north. Rehoboam will temporarily still reign in the south. We now have a divided kingdom. Verse 21, And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, that he might, notice, restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. 
So he's now not going to accept this. He goes and he rallies a bunch of troops, 185,000 people, and he is ready to launch a full-scale civil war of the southern people against those in the north to restore back what has been taken away from him. Listen, when God takes something away from you, you can try and fight and kick and do everything you want, but the only person who's going to restore it to you is God. And this guy's ready to incorporate 185,000 people and go to war against thousands of people and bloodshed and fighting and striving to try and restore back and get back what he wants. And I understand his reasoning, but unfortunately, it would be a vain effort and God, seeing what this would have caused, intervened in mercy to try and spare everyone more misery and pain and hardship. The word of God came Again, notice to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Israel, and say to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, verse 24, You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord, and turn back according to the word of the Lord. So thankfully, God sends word through the prophet and he says to Rehoboam and he says to the people who had gathered with him, listen, don't do this. This turn of events is from me. What's happened is something that I have allowed to come to pass because of what Solomon did. And I know that you want to fight to reverse what just took place and everything in your human reasoning says fight against it, fight against it. But he says here, listen, it's not going to do anything but cause more hurt and harm at this point. Don't strive to make something come to pass when God is working in a unique and a different way. God had orchestrated and allowed it to happen and now the best thing for them to do was to take their hands off and to rest. And he says here to them, go home, don't fight against this. Look at verse 24 again, the statement there, for this thing is from me. Don't fight against it. And you know, sometimes I think the word of the Spirit of God to us sometimes when we're trying to maybe make something come to pass or change something that we didn't want to change to make it go back to the way we want it to be. And sometimes God says, listen, I bring change sometimes. I actually know what I'm doing. And even sometimes things unfold as the result of mistakes and failures of human beings. But sometimes God says, listen, it's from me. This thing that you're so concerned that you have to take, it's from me. Accept it as from me. Don't fight against it. And I don't know what's going on in your life tonight. Perhaps the word of the Lord from the Holy Spirit to some this evening is what you are about to fight against. Don't. Maybe God's saying, it's from me. Just accept it. Allow it in faith. Let it come to pass and trust God's sovereignty. Let's pray together. Father, thank